All right, this is tribalism lesson two, and we're technically calling it racism. We may want to rechange the entire title of all of this, but I may just keep it with tribalism. Tribalism we originally wrote because of our experiences in Africa. Africans don't necessarily have racism. They're all one, as we'd say, race. They're all black. Well, that's actually a misnomer, too, because you get above the Sahara Desert and you get into Arab-looking Africans, and you get a little bit further south, and you have Afrikaners who are whites, and you'll find what are classically called Asians or Indians all over Africa because of the British Empire. So it's just a convoluted Play-Doh of a mess anymore. In Africa, though, you typically don't have racism. You have tribalism. But here in America, because we are a smorgasbord of cultures, we understand racism. So in, in praying about all this, and especially in light of our current culture, our current society, and what's going on in our media, in our, in, in, from politics to sports to universities, this demon of racism has been reinvigorated, and he is, uh, he's seeking whom he may devour, and it really shouldn't surprise us to watch Christians fall to the spirit of racism. Let me also say this to just to throw it out there. Every one of us has prejudice in us. Every one of us has a, a touch of racism in us. We're going to define all these things a little bit more further. Every one of us has xenophobia in us. Xenophobia is just the fear of a stranger. Some of this is a little healthy because it's a defense mechanism, but it, when it becomes sinful, we have to be careful. Now, racism is never tolerable, so don't, don't, don't misunderstand me here. Sometimes a little bit of xenophobia, a little bit of fear of strangers is okay because that's called being wise. But once you get to know them, the guard comes down. My little girls, they have a bugophobia. There's a little bit of a healthy fear of bugs, and I appreciate that because I don't want them playing with scorpions or black widows. I'd rather them squeal and run than just eat everything that crawls over them. So anyway, let's look at our lesson this morning. As we covered in the previous lesson, tribalism is the pride in one's tribe and belief that how and where you were born makes you superior to others. Now that's absolutely insanity because as we covered previously from other scriptures, every one of us is born exactly where God wanted us to born, be born. We are the color God wanted us to be. We are the height God wanted us to be. We, we are in the area of life God ordained from the foundation of the world for us to be born in. We've got to be thankful we weren't born someplace else rather than thinking we're special because we aren't something else. We should at least be thankful. And also be mindful there's always somebody that has it worse than you. Amen. So tribalism is that belief that because you were born Cherokee, you're better than Arapaho. Those are American tribes. Or because you were born Club D uh, Clan Dingwall, you're better than Clan Stewart, which is Scottish tribes. Or because you were born of the tribe of Manasseh, you're better than the tribe of Judah. Or because you're Lua, you're better than Maasai, which is Kenyan, or Shona, or Zulu, whatever. It's ignorance because you're born exactly where God wants you to be born. And you speak the language God wants you to speak. This is the fruit of the Antichrist spirit. Tribalism is. So is racism. So is prejudice. And the Bible promises it will increase and increase as we approach Christ's return. So Matthew 24, 7 says, For nation, which is the word ethnos, or tribe, shall rise up against nation, ethnos, or tribe, and kingdom against kingdom. So notice the King James translators, and even the New American Standard says, nation and kingdom. But in our modern understanding, we don't really see a difference between kingdom and nation in our vernacular. Because a kingdom 
is a domain that has a head, a prime minister, a king, a president, and the people under that, but that's the same thing as a nation to us. The Greek makes a bigger distinction that we have to look at this morning to understand this. Kingdom will be divided against kingdom, or rise up against kingdom. There shall be famines and pestilence, earthquakes, and diverse places. So the word kingdom here is this Greek word basilia, and it means royal power, dominion, rule. This includes our understanding of kings and their domains. Like a kingdom, it refers to the king's domain. Thus, this word seems to imply nations as we understand them today, along with their presidents, their prime ministers, or kings. And typically, the nations of the world today, they're, they're run by either a king slash dictator, a prime minister slash dictator, or presidents. Most, all your European nations have prime ministers. Uh, there are a few kingdoms left in Europe, but they're like the Queen of England. That's mostly just a a social status. It's mostly a representation, a representative of the nation. It's, they're called, when you, when you support the queen in England, you're called a royalist, and you still support the royalty, even though she doesn't officially run the kingdom, parliament does. And so we understand Basilia as, as what we get today, the United Nations. Those are kingdoms represented there. Nigeria, Botswana, Italy, Russia, China, India, Pakistan, uh, Bulgaria. These are nations. These are kingdoms. The word nation, though, is different in the Greek. Though this word is translated nation, we automatically put our understanding on it, which is not accurate here. But it is the Greek word ethnos. That is where we get our word ethnic. It's a broad term for any group of people, whether it be a nation, a tribe, a clan, a caste, as in Indians understand the caste system, or even a group of animals. So the word ethnos just refers to a grouping. And we understand in our probably or middle school biology that we have groupings of animals. You have a, a, murder of not of, uh, a murder of crows, a flock of geese, a pack of dogs, and my favorite is a committee of vultures. I don't know why churches run by committees. <laughs> but in biology, it's called a committee of vultures, and every Baptist church appreciates that. Every good Southern Baptist pastor says, yes and amen, they are a pack of vultures. Wait, pack of dogs too. So this would have been the Greek word ethnos, a grouping. But its context in the Bible lets us know how to apply it. But in our modern understanding, the word nation is probably not accurate. We would probably use ethnic group. And that makes more sense when we understand today's racism or prejudice or ethnic hatred. It was also used in the King James, or the, excuse me, in the Greek New Testament to group associations of professionals. I'm sorry, that, that's the Greek use, not in the Bible. So you could use the word ethnos to group carpenters, to group masons, bakers, etc. So again, we're not seeing kings and authoritarian leadership and governments. We're seeing groups of people in the word ethnos. In the New Testament, the term is used to describe assemblies of people, whether it be the nation of Israel, that's the ethnos of Israel, because there's no king over them in that general term. Nations in general, the people of God called a holy nation, so we don't necessarily have a natural domain like Yugoslavia does or the Czech Republic, but we are the holy nation of God, a group of people called out. We are the church. And then those outside of Israel and ignorant of God. And in 1 Thessalonians, the word ethnos is actually translated Gentile. And many times ethnos is translated Gentile, as in every group of person that does not know God through the Jewish covenant or through the Christ uh, new covenant. So I, I do all this, I, I lay all this out so we understand 
Christ's prophecy that ethnic group will rise up against ethnic group because that is what we modern we understand in modern terms as racism. Now, before I start sounding like a progressive CNN talking head or a social justice warrior, let me say that a lot of what's going on in America is not racism. It's just sheer stupidity. And we're going to prove that out from the word. Even we're going to, the next thing we want to look at is the actual definition of racism and just explain how maybe what we're seeing in America is not patently racism. It's not right. But it may be something we'll cover in the next lesson, which is called culturism, or to be a culturist. That is to have a prejudice based on culture. Because if we apply it to, if we apply racism to the black experience, black Africans are totally different than African Americans. The only thing they have in common is a DNA, which provides a skin color. And that would be about it. Now, I'm going to say something that today would be called racist, but I didn't make the statement. We, you know, we have a lot of Africans, real Africans, not African-Americans, but real Africans that come through the church because of our missionary thing, the call of God. I, I don't know. We, we once had a Nigerian tech student who came here for a season, and I could tell he wasn't real hungry for God, but his father and mother came two or three times, and they loved our church. And the Nigerian father told me, he said, when I sent my son to America, I told him, do not fellowship with the African-Americans. They will destroy you. Get among the whites. They will educate you. That is what a Nigerian father told me about his son, a Nigerian, coming to America. That's not racism because it's technically the same race. It's a cultural observation that the Nigerian father made. And he said, and now that, that becomes what's also called a stereotype because we know not all African-Americans will destroy you, but it's a stereotype he was observing from Nigeria, and he wanted his son to come here to be educated, not get involved in the stereotypical African-American experience, which even me saying that, being white, I'm going to be labeled a racist. I didn't make the statement, though, but I understood his sentiment. You should ask Mr. Cephas why he married a white girl, being an African really quiet in here and I pastor a very multicultural church so Matthew 24 7 Jesus prophesied that literally groups of people would suddenly awake or awaken and noticing their own differences become hostile one towards another whereas for generations they looked at each other and didn't see a difference and all of a sudden it's like they'll wake up and say we're different I hate you that's a spiritual thing. That, that's a spiritual situation. That's a spiritual experience to live together in peace for generations or millennia and all of a sudden realize, we're different. I don't like you anymore. When did this happen? When the devil moved through the demon of racism. This will bring, excuse me, this wicked attitude, and that really racism is an attitude provoked by demon spirits, and it's taught, it's communicated from parent to child. This wicked attitude will only increase in frequency and intensity. And we certainly have seen that in this nation in the last 10 years. And I was born in the 70s, right on the heels of the civil rights movement, you know, half a generation after that. I was brought up in the South with some racism in me. 
but moved to Seattle. Actually, a lot of my friends growing up in Knoxville were, were black. In fact, a friend of mine, Travis Dixon, was a black kid. I didn't think anything of it, but my parents thought something of it because they were brought up in the South during segregation. So the fact that their son had a black friend named Travis Dixon, and my mom worked with his mom at the hospital, and we hung out all the, all the time, and I didn't think anything of it. I just knew he could run really fast, and I, I couldn't keep up with him. That's a stereotype. That's not racist. That's a stereotype. <laughs> but my parents really thought a big deal out of it because they were brought up differently. I moved to Seattle, which probably is one of the most diverse cities in the world, and learned to not see anything, but learned to recognize different last names from different cultures and think it was really cool. And everybody in, in high school in Seattle dated somebody who, of a different race. Asians dating whites and Hispanics dating blacks and blacks dating Asians and nobody cared. And that was very good for me coming out of the South 25 years ago. This is going to increase more and more. And we certainly have seen it. My point with that is coming into the 90s, most of my generation didn't care about color anymore. We just, we just didn't care. Coming into the 2000s, I don't think America much cared anymore. But in the last 10 or 12 years, if all of a sudden this thing's flared up and all of a sudden we care again. When we didn't, we, we had almost totally lost the perspective of differences. But in the last 10 or 12 years, I, I won't blame this, the previous administration. I'm going to blame the demon of racism and the fulfillment of Bible prophecy. But somebody was going to yield to it and kind of promote the thing. This will bring nations to war and people groups into new prejudices. This is very similar to racism. Uh, that is prejudices and wars. So let's look at the exact definition of racism. And I've, I've gone through a couple different dictionaries on, online looking at different variations of the definition of racism. So I want to slow down on this because today every little slight is called racist. And that's almost like just chicken little saying the sky is falling, the sky is falling, or the little boy who cried wolf. Like, come on, give me a break. Just because I'm wearing a black suit doesn't mean I'm racist. There's not some kind of hidden agenda in a white preacher wearing a black suit. Me trying to say I'm oppressing the people. You're petty. Grow up. Definition number one. Prejudice, discrimination, or antagonism directed against someone of a different race based... Now, here's, here's, here's what makes it racism. Based on the belief that one's own race is superior. So prejudice, discrimination, and antagonism based on a belief. Not prejudice based on the fact that you're a lazy worker. Not prejudice based on the fact that you show up late for work. I, I need to be prejudiced against a lazy worker and someone who can't keep the time clock. But nowadays, if you were to fire someone and their skin color was different, they'd claim racism. But the definition of racism is antagonism, prejudice, and discrimination based on the inward belief that I am better than you because we're different colors. So it's based on a belief that I am better than you because we were born different. I don't believe that really exists much in America. I certainly believe prejudice exists. I don't believe most folks in America think a white person is better than a black person because we have different pigment. Or a black person is better than a white person because we have different pigment. Or that La Raza, the race, that's a Hispanic racial group. The Mexicans are better than whites because they, they are La Raza and we are not La Raza. I don't think that necessarily exists like it's taught or perceived to exist. Number two, 
the belief that all members of each race possess characteristics or abilities specific to that race, especially so as to distinguish it as inferior or superior to another race or races. Now that is, that is the, the philosophy of racism. When you believe that each race is better at something than another race because it's in that race, and therefore that makes them superior or inferior, that is called racism. No mistreatment involved in that, just a belief system. That this comes to stereotypes, so I'm going to say a lot of stuff that anybody listening to this in the future, if you have any ounce of premature, immature carnality in you, it's going to trigger you because you're carnal. But the stereotypes that say Asians are good at math and therefore are superior, that would be a racist, though there's no violence involved. That's just a stereotype belief. Or that blacks are better at sports. That's a stereotypical belief. Or that whites are stiff and starchy. That's a stereotypical belief. And of course, we, if you lived and had friends outside your color, you, you know that these are both stereotypes and not stereotypes. And they, they, don't, they don't line up to things that actually exist, but there is a stereotypical belief out there. So the second definition is just the philosophy or the theory that, of racism in that all members of, one, of each race possess characteristics or abilities specific just to that race, especially as so as to distinguish it as inferior or superior to another race or races. That's the theory. That's the philosophy. That's the doctrine of racism. You and I understand racism as antagonism or discriminatory behavior based on these beliefs. So the third definition, a belief or doctrine that inherent differences among the various human racial groups determine cultural or individual achievement, usually involving the idea that one's own race is superior and has the right to dominate others. That's where we get into the, the crux of today's nitty-gritty racism, the belief that I have the right to dominate you because you're different color than me, or that a particular racial group is inferior to the others. So what you and I understand as racism today is that there's a mistreatment involved. And if there's a mistreatment or a slight, it must be based on a racist heart. Now, if that's the case, I can't equally employ anybody. Because if I can't equally employ anybody, I can't equally discipline anybody. What this is demanding, today's mindset is demanding, is that I have to actually discriminate, against, or discriminate for you if you're a different color. Now, we call that entitlement. Because I'm a different color than the boss man, he has to treat me better. Because if he treats me worse, I can call him a racist. See, there's not even any justice in that. And that's the way the devil likes it. Now let me be clear, I'm against racism. I believe I have prejudice in me. I'm not so naive as to think I'm perfect. But I can tell you, I am not racist. I will travel this world to preach to any race eat their food, smell like them, and embrace their culture and, and enjoy it. But a lot of what goes on in America is just ignorance and laziness and entitlement. Both whites and blacks and Hispanics. And I've shared with you sitting down with a great missionary who had been a missionary in Asia for many years. He was from Mississippi. And he found out I was from Tennessee. He said, I am now more Filipino than I am American. I've been here way longer than I was ever raised in, in Mississippi. He said, but let me tell you something, son. He said, the Asians way beat America when it comes to racism. He said, Americans think the black-white race thing is, is the sole thing of racism in the world. He said, you've never seen racism until you've seen a Japanese man, a Chinaman, and a Filipino in the same room. 
you've never seen. He said, that racism is racism on a whole other level. And we don't get that because that's not our context. That's not our culture. That's not how we were brought up. You and I, if you're like a typical American, black or white, you can't tell the difference between a Filipino, a Chinaman, and a Japanese man. But they can. They can hear it in the accent. They can tell it by the last name. They can tell it by the facial features. I was shocked to be in South Africa and know that the Zulus hated the Shonans, which were Zimbabweans, and they could tell each other apart. That's tribalism, though. It's not racism because it's the same race. It's black. Of course, we know there's only one race, the human race. You see how the devil just convinces people of convoluted stupidity? I've got to keep moving. There's a lot we want to cover. Racism is not new, nor is it unique to America. So people in America got to stop thinking that they've been the most mistreated people on the planet. We might even need to coin a term called religionists because right now Muslims in the Middle East love to target Christians and Yazidis for the sex trade. Actually, in Egypt, Muslims, now not every Muslim, but Muslims will specifically target young Christian Coptics girls and they will send out a Muslim young man to fall in love on purpose. It's all a deceit, deceitful setup. And convince that young Christian girl that they will convert to Christianity, but they've got to run off and elope. And what that young man does is then kidnap her and sell her into the sex trade. That is an epidemic in Egypt right now. That is an Egyptian targeting another Egyptian along Christian and religious, race, uh, religious lines. So just because somebody fired you because you're lazy has nothing to do with your skin color. You ought to be praying for the Christian 13-year-old girl who was just sold into slavery by her fake boyfriend, never to see her family again, to be raped 20 times a day till she's dead. I really want to tell America, woe is you, you pathetic nation of squabbling wusses. Nobody knows the trouble you've seen. Nobody knows but Jesus. Pathetic. Petty. Petty, petty, petty disgust me. Racism exists between the different Asian nations and even the different Latin nations. Just so you know, his Mexicans, generally speaking, are prejudiced against Guatemalans. And Guatemalans, when they make it to the U.S., have come through Mexico, immigrating, hating Mexicans. This is a generality because of the way the Mexicans mistreated them all their way from Guatemala up to Mexico. They don't get along on job sites. And you and I can't tell them apart because we're neither Guatemalan or Mexican. Amen. Stories of racism are also included in the Bible record. <laughs> Everybody who doesn't serve Jesus thinks their problem is the worst in the world. Egypt and Israel, Genesis 43. And he, Joseph, this is when Joseph was prime minister and this is when his brothers come before him, and he has not revealed himself to them yet. So Joseph, no doubt, has a shaved face, and he, he probably is wearing that typical eye makeup we see in the history books of the Egyptians, you know, very stereotypical Egyptian look with the, the headdress that, you know, kind of comes down like you've seen the pharaohs. So no doubt he doesn't look anything like a Hebrew, because the Hebrews would have had beards. The Semitics had beards. So he, Joseph, washed his face and he went out and he refrained himself. That means he constrained his emotions because these are his brothers he's not seen in 15 years. And he recognizes them, but they don't recognize him. And he said, set on bread to the servants. And they set on him, uh, set on for him by himself. 
and for them by themselves and for the Egyptians which did eat with him by themselves because the Egyptians might not eat bread with the Hebrews for that is an abomination unto the Egyptians. The Egyptians did not eat with the Semitics or the Hebrews. Semitic is a general term for the Arab people. Uh, Hebrew is a subset of the Semitics, the Semites. So we see here that even in this day, Egypt, kind of the center of the, of the modern world, the Hebrews would come and deal and trade. And they would deal and trade and sit down to do business, but they would not sit down at the same table to eat. It was an abomination. It's a racial tension. I, we think we're cleaner than you. We don't shave our face. You guys, uh, we shave our face. You guys grow beards. You live in tents. We live in cities. You, you see this. This is, this is 4,000 years ago. You see a racial tension. You see a segregation. And it was just accepted. Was it right? Probably not. No. Nobody's complaining. They understood it was cultural. There are many nations today, cultures today, women and men eat separately. Nobody squawks about it. Is it right? Yeah, you know. I like to fellowship with my wife and my girls. It's cultural. There's a racial element, absolutely. There's a difference here between a Hebrew and an Egyptian. But I want you to see that your racial experience isn't unique. Though the Egyptians would trade and do business with the Semitics, they obviously thought themselves too good to share a table with them at mealtime. However, with the popularity and deliverance brought about by the hand of Joseph, a Hebrew... The Egyptians embraced the Hebrews and their racism toward them turned to thankfulness and acceptance for a season. They were allowed to come in. The Pharaoh told Joseph, bring your family down here. Bring your father down here. And gave him the entire land of Goshen. And they became part of their society. Now they didn't integrate because the Egyptians were polytheistic and the Hebrews were monotheistic. So they, they segregated but they still interacted. They lived in separate neighborhoods based on religious beliefs, but they were accepted. They were part of the society. So much as that when they did finally come out, many of the Egyptians came out with the Hebrews because they wanted to be a part of this Jehovah God. Their racism soon saw a renaissance, the Egyptian racism. Racism can be developed and cultivated where there has previously been peace and acceptance. And of course, we understand through sociology and just life experience, people aren't born racist. They aren't born hating people of a different color. About a year or two ago, I was sitting down with our girls, mostly Lydia, and we, we have the children's books, and there's all these different children making faces and touching things, and it's learning words, and, and I, I decided to try this little test. I said, hey, honey, point to the black baby. And Lydia looked at me and said, what? I said, point to the black baby. I said, all right, point to the white baby. And she had no idea what I was even talking about. Can you point to the sailboat? Can you point to the bathtub? Black baby in the bathtub, white baby holding a sailboat. She didn't get that there was a different color thing at all. It has to be taught people. Next week, we're going to get into culturalism. And that is the, the arrogance believing that your culture is better than somebody else's culture. Culture is what is taught. And yet culture is also what biblical, what biblical discrimination should be based on. And by biblical discrimination, I mean we assault culture that doesn't line up with the Bible. So just so you don't get offended at that statement, polygamy is a culture. It's one we encounter in some of the remote places of Africa. We can rebuke 
African pastors that have eight wives because it's not biblical. We can rebuke them, sit them down from their pulpit. It has nothing to do with the fact that they're black and I'm white. It has everything to do with the fact that they've embraced the culture of polygamy and they don't qualify to be a pastor so long as they're taking care of eight wives. Yet if you brought that to America, if I sat down a black pastor before having eight wives, I would be called a racist because of ignorance, not because of biblical wisdom. Culture is what is taught. And when you teach children a culture that says everybody's equal in the eyes of God, but we've got to serve Jesus together, they don't care what color you are. Teach your kids to, to appreciate other cultures different than yours. We have to deal with this because this is Cookville in the South, and we're pretty ignorant and backwards. Can't even enunciate and conjugate verbs. And therefore, well, they don't talk like us. Praise God they don't talk like us. Amen. Racism can be cultivated and developed. And we have to be careful that though we might be pure today, we might develop racism tomorrow. We don't want to do that. Exodus 1, 8 through 13, right after the story of Genesis 43, says, Now there arose up a new king over Egypt, who, which knew not Joseph. And he said unto his people, Behold, the people, the people, the people of the children of Israel. Do you see the divisive language? It is so wrong for blacks and whites in America to say, My people. Your people. If we're born again, we have a people. It doesn't matter their skin color. The Bible says there's only one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of us all, one body. There's not my people and your people. There's the people of God. And if you're not part of the people of God, you're not my people. I don't care if we're from the same clan in Scotland. If you're not my people, you're going to hell. You know, and blacks in America and whites in America want to talk about your people and my people. That's stupid. And we see a wicked king using the same language in America today. The people of the children of Israel. Notice it says, and he said to his people. He said to his people, the people of the children of Israel are more and mightier than we. Come, let us deal wisely with them. Lest they multiply and it come to pass that when there falleth out any war, they join also unto our enemies and fight against us and so get them up out of the land. Therefore they did set over them taskmasters to afflict them with their burdens. But the more they afflicted them, the more they multiplied and grew and they were grieved because of the children of Israel. So I look at this and I see a pattern, a perfect pattern and demonstration of the genesis or the origin or the birth of racism. Number one, two peoples. Well, you know what? There's 210 nations in the world. There's a lot more than two peoples. But here, anytime there's two outwardly different types of appearances, there's going to be room for racism to be born. Number two, you have to have someone to promote the sin of racism, Pharaoh. You have to have a carnal person. This is, racism is taught in many churches in America today, systematically. Not with that speech, but with that attitude. Anytime it's my people and your people, anytime the emphasis of church is on a color and not on the blood of Jesus or the gospel, that church has the demon of racism working in its leadership. Anytime the emphasis and the thrust and the purpose of a ministry has to do with a skin color, for skin color's sake, you have a demon in that church, and God won't bless that church. And I see it in white churches, and I really see it in black churches in America. I told you, 
you know, I'm a white guy, and so by, by American standard, I'm a white oppressor and a white supremacist by America's standard because I'm a white guy. And I apparently have this thing called white privilege, which means I got to work my way through college, and I got to work at Lowe's and believe God for a better job. And then I got to work hard on that job to earn a promotion. I guess that's my white privilege. Oh, and my parents both worked themselves through college. Oh, and my, my wife was raised poor white trash. She got to work her life through college and pay for it herself and take seven or eight years to get her degree. I guess that's white privilege. But being down in Natchez, Mississippi, in the, in the very heart of plantation times, on the banks of the Mississippi River, and I toured several plantations while I was there for three weeks on business, I visited a church. The Lord led me to a church, and I walk in, and it was all black people. And I know racism. And the first thing I asked is, I said, are white people welcome here? Because I wanted to make sure. Because I know the attitude of the further south you go, how it is. Because I'm from Louisiana. And the lady, that, I can't remember her name, sister or something, she said, honey, all people are welcome here. And that church had a holy move of God. I had, they had me preach there twice. We laid hands on folks, cast a demon out of a lady in the church. It was a wonderful time in Christ. And I still think about Word of Faith Christian Center down in Natchez, Mississippi. Word of Faith Church. Someone has to promote it. And if it's in the leadership, it'll be in the church. Number three, use of divisive language. The people of the children of Israel. Us, them, those people. You know how they are. You got to be careful. Is that racial? Is that just stereotyping? And if you don't like your stereotype, don't feed it. Paranoia, number fourth point, paranoia, fear, and insecurity is rationale. They are more and mightier than we. There might be a war someday. They might join our enemies and turn on us. Notice there is no basis for this fear. It's paranoia. This is demonic, making you afraid, making you terrified when there's nothing to be afraid of. So you automatically become racial. You automatically start looking for differences. Demonstration of systematic racism ensues. The oppression and enslavement of a people that once dwelt together in unity, peace, and prosperity. And truthfully, if it had not been for the people they were oppressing, the Egyptians would not exist because it was Joseph and his wisdom that delivered all of Egypt. So there was a loss of thankfulness and gratitude. It was just fear in this one Pharaoh that set this thing in motion. Look at our next section. Well, let me go back. You see these five points. You can apply this to white on black racism, black on white racism, white against Hispanic racism, Filipino against Japanese racism. The reason they all hate the Japanese is because of World War II and the imperial Japanese empire. It can be all the tribes in Kenya that we've dealt with that are racist or tribalist against each other. If you can shut down vain imaginations, you can find good in anybody. And you can find commonality too. But the devil does not like that. Egyptian racism turned to attempted genocide. Pure, unadulterated, unbridled, unhindered racism has no greater manifestation than genocide. And this is where we got to start looking at things. Is it, is it just racism uh, or is it just prejudice? And neither one are right, but prejudice just kind of snubs. Racism looks to exterminate. You saw that in the 90s in Rwanda, which is extreme tribalism, where the Hutus and the Tutsis, I believe it was, was it the, the Tutsis that were annihilated or the Hutus? Do you remember? The Tutsis were annihilated. Like a million in two or three years were completely just butchered in the streets by the Hutus. 
And you and I wouldn't be able to tell them a difference, tell them apart. You and I can't even find Wanda on a map. I can. You may not be able to. It's right there by Uganda. That's the heart of racism. I'm better than you. I'll prove it. I'll wipe you out. We don't have that in America. We have prejudice. We have stupidity. We have pettiness. Genocide is the deliberate and systematic extermination of racial or cultural of a racial or cultural group. If a group of people truly hates another people, genocide is a natural, howbeit demonic, course of action. And the king of Egypt spake to the Hebrew midwives, of which the name of one was Shipra and the name of the other was Pua. Notice these women; their names are recorded in the Bible. And he said, "When you do the office of the midwife to the Hebrew women." And see them upon the stools, that is, getting ready to deliver their babies. If it be a son, then you shall kill him. Now, I've read commentaries on this. and They believe that, you know, when the midwife is there to deliver the baby, as soon as the baby comes out, suffocate the baby so you can say it was stillborn. Suffocate or strangle. But if it be a daughter, then she shall live. But the midwives fear God and did not as the king of Egypt commanded them, but saved the men children alive. So long story short, when, when the population doesn't decrease, he, the Pharaoh calls these, these two captains of the Hebrew midwives. These are two leaders of the women. And then they have all these midwives under them. What's going on? And he, he said, um, the Hebrew women just give birth really easy and really fast. And we can't get there in time. That was their lie. And that means they told the midwives, just take your time. Because the second the baby comes and the baby begins to cry, you know it's not stillborn and the baby has to keep living. The Bible says God honored those women and made great homes or houses out of them as well. Having failed to crush and break the Hebrews through slavery and cruel affliction, Pharaoh institutes systematic infanticide as means of early population control. The Chinese do that to this day to their own people. This fails due to two God-fearing midwives. Exodus 1.22. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, saying, these are the people under his command, every son of who is born you are to cast into the Nile, and every daughter you are to keep alive. He says, all right, I can't trust the midwives. Here's the new rule. You have to do it. Just If there's a son born, chuck it in the river. If it's born alive, that's the new command. Chuck it in the river. Drown it. Abortion's nothing new. We just fund it with taxpayer dollars in America. Actually, abortion may be the most racist thing in America because it's true infanticide. And the greatest, the greatest victim of abortion in America is the African-American community. It was 30 or 40% of abortions are black babies. 1,400 black babies are aborted every day. And if you visit Planned Parenthoods in, in local cities, they're always in the black community a bulk of the time. So tell me, what is really racist? Is it the government funding the abortions of a black race? A democratic government funded by Democrats? Just asking. If you can look past emotions and look at facts, the answer is pretty easy. We had one black pastor's wife defend abortion and say it doesn't matter. They're just babies anyway. They go to heaven. supposed to be a Pentecostal woman. Pharaoh's new proclamation did not depend on midwives suffocating babies in order to feign stillbirths. It was an outright command for the Hebrew families to drown their own sons. How diabolical and wicked. These are the conditions under which Moses was born. Let's look at another example because I'm way not going to have enough time. 
Jews and Samaritans, just so you know that your racial experience isn't new. In fact, in February, I've never had this happen. I think I shared this. I've never had this happen. I didn't even know what to think of it. We went, uh, we were with um, Bishop Magaga and uh, some of his folks and, and Mandela, I call him Mandiba, uh, Nelson. Nelson was our, he's our, our guy that always takes care of us in Kenya, but his name's Nelson, so we call him Mandela or Mandiba for Nelson Mandela. Great brother in the Lord. And so we're touring these rock formations and climbing them. And as we're coming out, it's like a little tourist spot. This group of college kids comes up and this, this Kenyan comes up pinching his nose at me. And I didn't know what in the world he was doing. And it, speaking with, trying to speak with an American accent. And Mandiba got very offended. And Bishop Magaga just wanted us to walk on. And uh, I said, what's wrong with your face? When I picked up that he was making fun of me being white. That's why I was pinching his nose. Because I don't have the African nose. I don't have the broad African nose. I have a skinny honky nose. Why are we called honkies if we have... Maybe that's why we're called. Maybe that's why I should be offended every time a black person calls me honky, because he's saying, and uh, this guy was making fun of us being white, and I just thought, and I said, you look ridiculous, man. What's wrong with your face? What's wrong with your nose? And Mandiba had to explain to us he was trying to make fun of you. He was trying to do an American accent, and I didn't catch it because it still sounded like Kenyan Swahili accent to me. But it's just, it's just stupid. It's absolutely stupid. Racism is such a petty, ignorant, stupid thing. It just really reveals insecurity and a lack of walk with Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Because Jesus loves everybody. The Samaritans were a unique ethnic group in Israel, first mentioned in the Bible after the exile, the Babylonian exile. Technically, Samaritans have a bloodline that is part Hebrew and part Gentile. The Samaritans were the result of the Assyrians repopulating the remnants of Israel's northern kingdom after conquering it. The Assyrians moved slaves from other conquered lands into Israel and allowed them to intermarry with the Israelite remnant to purposely mix the peoples and destroy Israel's culture and heritage, and we might even say morale. It's a brilliant thing to do when you conquer a land. Just mix them and make them gray Play-Doh. The resulting people were called Samaritans because they mostly lived in Samaria and they viewed Mount Gerizim as, as their Mount Zion. They claimed to be the original people of God and the keepers of the pure Torah. In truth, their religion was a, mixed, uh, was, uh, was a wicked mixture of uh, paganism and Judaism. For this and other reasons, the Jews despised them. So John 4, 9, Then says the woman of Samaria unto him, How is it that thou, being a Jew, asks drink of me, which am a woman of Samaria? So notice, she's very mindful. You're a Jew, and I'm a Samaritan. She calls out the differences right off the bat. And she says this, the Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. She points out to a cultural phenomenon in first century Palestine, the Jews have nothing to do with Samaritans. And you're asking me for something to drink? You know, you can see her guard is up. You can tell she has a racial tension. She's looking to be profiled. She's looking to be slighted. She's looking to call racism, which is so common in America anymore. It's really pathetic. Race, that's racist. That's racist. She has her guard up. And all Jesus says, give me to drink. She says, why are you asking me? You're a Jew, I'm a Samaritan. We don't, you don't have any dealings with me. You Jews don't do anything with us Samaritans. It's all your fault. This verse provides a window into the cultural and racial tension between the Jews and Samaritans in first century Palestine. Notice several things. The tension is two-way. It's not just Jew-Samaritan. It's also Samaritan-Jew. It isn't just the Jews mistreating Samaritans. It's the Samaritans taking attitude back at the Jews. 
Why couldn't she just say, sure. It was customary for women to serve the well, at the well, if a man came along. That was customary. You see that throughout all of Jewish history. If a woman's at the well and a man from society approaches, she'll stop what she's doing to serve him. It's just customary. She won't. You're a Jew. I'm a Samaritan. We're not even supposed to interact. Why are you even at my well? This is Jacob's well, she says. Her guard is up. The woman is very mindful that Jesus is a Jew. Can you imagine today saying, you're black, I'm white. Both people involved would say, duh. But yet that's how it goes today. We got to start, po- we, we almost make things worse by emphasizing pride and white and black. The woman is quick to point out she's a Samaritan. So we have racial pride. I'm a Samaritan. She expects to be treated one way due to how it's always been, but she is treated differently. She points out that the Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. Jesus sidetracks all the natural hangups and turns the conversation spiritual. And the second he turns it spiritual, she drops the racial junk. When Jesus proves he's not hung up on racial issues, the woman moves beyond them as well. I believe if she had stayed hung up on her racial issue, Jesus would have moved on. When she reveals she's really not hung up racially and she wants to know more, well, give me this water. He's able to give her freedom, which lets me know that racial hangups are not freeing and you're not going to get free staying hung up on them. The Jews didn't want to kill the Samaritans. They didn't even want to rule over them or oppress them. They just didn't want to have anything to do with them. Sometimes it is just subtle like that. This may, be, this may not be violent racism as defined above, but it's certainly prejudice and bigotry. We ought to be willing to sit with anybody. You and I have so many wonderful different colored brothers and sisters in Christ around the world that have different accents and, and, and different perspectives of the gospel and just beautiful. And when you're hung up on your blackness or you're hung up on your whiteness or you're hung up on your yellowness or you're hung up on whatever your colorness is, it really is pretty pathetic. Jesus' final commandments on earth further poked and prodded at the Jews' hang up with the Samaritans. But you shall receive power after the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses unto me both in Jerusalem and all Judea and in Samaria, and then the uttermost parts of the world. I, I see this, and what I see is that if, if we can't get pack, past our racial hang-ups, we're not going to be able to go into the mission field. Why would the Lord put you on the mission field if you can't even overcome your homegrown racial tensions? The Holy Ghost is given to empower us to be witnesses to everyone, even our prejudices. And notice you don't get to do missionary work until you first overcome your homegrown prejudices. You'll never go anywhere hung up on anti-black, anti-white. Black is great. Black, I, black power is such an offensive thing to God. But so is white power. So is la raza power. We're born again. We're one spirit in Christ. We're one body. We just have different earth suits, different accents. But we're all supposed to be accomplishing the same singular kingdom, which has its own culture. And as Pastor Okwoku taught, and I've said so many times, God cares nothing about your culture. He has given us the kingdom's culture. And any part of your culture that doesn't line up with God's culture should be aborted. And you should embrace the kingdom's culture over your own Scottish culture or Tennessee culture or La Raza culture or African culture. Abusing the term racism, final segment here. Currently, racism is applied to any and all misgivings or imagined slights by someone of another of one color against a person of another color. 
Sadly, this can too often be described as an immature and emotional person crying wolf. That's racist. That's racist. One of our young kids was telling us uh, they were playing soccer in a tournament and they were playing a mostly black team. And when that black team lost the soccer tournament, they turned to the mostly white team and started crying, racist, racist. No, it's not racist. You just got beat because you're not good at soccer. That's not a racial statement. That's just a statement of fact. No, No greater soccer player than Pele, who was Brazilian but mostly black. So you were teaching the next generation that when they lose, it's because people were racist against them. No, you lost because you're not good. It's as simple as that. Amen. Not every disagreement or criticism is rooted in an attitude of racial superiority. Not every disagreement or criticism you'll receive in life is rooted in an attitude of racial superiority. And again, this society says, who are you to judge? Who are you to, let me turn that on this society, who are you to look into somebody's heart and say they rebuked you because they're racist in their heart? They might have rebuked you because your performance was foul. You got fired because you earned it, not because you're white, not because you're Hispanic, not because you're Asian, not because you're black, but because you're not working hard enough. Amen. Psalm 133.1, Behold how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. Amen. Father, we need help. We know that the prophecy of Jesus Christ says that racial tensions are going to increase and ethnic group will be turned against ethnic group. Father, may this be far from us as believers. May this be far from us as folks confessing and professing the name of Jesus Christ. May we recognize differences, but find the common ground we have in Jesus Christ. And may we do everything we can to win every person to Jesus Christ, regardless of their racial background and color. We love you, Lord, and we need your help. In Jesus' name, amen.